Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 934, with Edward Slingerland, author of Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way Into Civilization. Alcohol is not like our taste for nicotine or our taste for junk food. It actually has a social, both social and individual functions that are very important. And so it's not, it's a different class of substance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the drinks industry has to be a little less defensive about this and make that positive case. And, and restaurants have to also step up and make the positive case that, you know, we're crucial for societies to function properly. Mm-hmm. If you don't have places for people to gather over food and alcohol in an informal, communal way, your society is going to get really weird. Are you ready for It Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Did you know 42% of restaurant guests will eat elsewhere if their calls are missed? What? That's crazy. That's why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering is powered by artificial intelligence to answer the most common and simple questions people call with like, do you have outdoor seating and what are your hours? Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear, plus create customized greetings. Here's your offer. Reclaim the power of your phone now with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, author of Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way Into Civilization, Edward Slingerland. Edward, are you feeling unstoppable today. I, I am. Yes. <laughs> so I'm super excited for today's conversation. Um, you might be listening to this and thinking to yourself, why is Eric talking to somebody who wrote a book called Drunk? What does this have to do with the restaurant industry? I would argue a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we are in the business of serving alcohol to people. I think we have a social responsibility to educate ourselves and the public on what an appropriate relationship with alcohol should be. So that's kind of why we're here today. I cannot wait to dive into it. But before we do, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uwe. Uwe. What's yeah. Uwe? 
uh, effortless action. It's a state kind of like flow. Okay. That's what one should be in while waiting tables or doing a podcast interview. Yes. You, this isn't the first book you wrote. No, no. So my previous, uh, trade book, book for a popular audience was called trying not to try. Yeah. And it's about this concept. Yes. Of effortless action. Yeah. Admittedly, I have not read your book, the first one, but I'm really, after knowing, becoming aware of it, I'm really interested in it. But why is that so important? This, this idea of Uwe, am I saying it correctly? Uwe. Uwe, thank you. So it's a, uh, for the early Chinese, there's actually a direct connection to drunk. So, you know, my, my background is in early Chinese philosophy and a lot of people are puzzled how I wrote a book about the history of alcohol and science of alcohol. But it actually started with this this earlier book. So my my work, early academic work, was on this this concept of Wu Wei. It's like a state where you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, and everything you do just works. You know, you uh, you're successful in the world. People like you. You're charismatic. Everything works out the way you want, even though you're not trying. You have a sense of not exerting effort. Um, these early Chinese philosophers all want you to get into that state. But they have a problem, and I, what I point out in trying to try, if you're trying to be, if you know that being spontaneous is the way to succeed, and you're not in a state of spontaneity at the moment, and you try to be spontaneous, it's going to screw you up. Because <laughs> yeah. you're, uh, you're yourself, you're not, like being aware of spontaneity isn't spontaneous. Yeah, and it's actually, you know, neuroscientifically, it's because if you're trying not to try the part of your brain you're activating, roughly the prefrontal cortex, the center of cognitive control, is the part you're trying to shut down. So that's why it's directly paradoxical. So if I tell you, relax, I've now activated the part of your brain that is preventing you from relaxing. Think so, about a moose. Yeah, they, don't, think, yeah, about don't moose. think about a white yeah, bear. is exactly. a classic yeah. example of yeah. Dan Wagner. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the early Chinese thinkers come up with a variety of ways to kind of trick you into forgetting about the paradox and getting around it. So um, sit like this, meditate, do these rituals. But at a certain point, it occurred to me that another way to get around the paradox is if you had a substance in a cup that you could just go like this. And I'm not trying to relax. I'm just drinking something. But it's going in and slowly turning down my prefrontal cortex. That's a way around the paradox. And so I got interested in how cultures might have hit upon intoxicants, and particularly alcohol, as a cultural technology for getting around this paradox of how do you try not to try. So it's not why we're here today to talk about why it's important to try not to try, but why is that so important? Why? What is the benefit of, of trying not to try? There are a lot of goals that you can only achieve if you're relaxed and spontaneous. Uh, creativity, love, happiness. And so alcohol, I mean, the, the central theme of drunk is that even though we've been told scientifically that our taste for alcohol is a mistake evolutionarily. It's not. Um, I argue that it's got all these social benefits, including enhanced creativity, um, group innovation, group bonding, stress reduction, things that have helped us make the transition from small scale to large scale societies. And this is something that, um, I, I personally love chaos. I, I, I've never been somebody who embraces a plan. Mm-hmm. I like to just go to a city and start talking to people and say, who should I talk to next? Right. And there seems to be this this lean in a direction today that the more systematic things are, the more planned things are, the more in order things are, the better off you'll be. Do you 
agree with that or disagree with that? I disagree with that pretty strongly. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do too. Like it is, the order has never felt natural to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how do you, how does one embrace uh, chaos, but also become successful if you need all those other things? You need to do the prep. You can't, chaos has to follow preparation if you're going to be successful, I think. So, you know, um, <clears throat> if I'm giving a lecture in, a, in front of a big class, I've got to prepare. I got to know my lecture notes. I have to know what I'm talking about. But then when I start to talk, I have to forget my lecture notes and be open to going off on a tangent or a student asks a question and that reminds me of something and I talk about it. Um, so lectures can become chaotic in a good way when there's been preparation behind them. If, yes. if you get up and just start trying to talk about something you don't know anything about, it'll be a disaster. Yes. And the same thing, like going to a new city, like going to a new city, I usually like to, you know, get an idea of where the cool neighborhoods are, like where I might want to go wander. And then I go wander. So there's the uncontrolled part of it, wandering around. But I did a little bit of planning, so I'm not like wandering around in some, you know, abandoned business area at night. <laughs> it's <laughs> about no, balance, It's right? about balance, yes. yeah. And I think that's a big part of today's conversation. Because yeah. um, one thing I've noticed, I mean, if, if anybody is alive today, all we've ever known is alcohol in abundance. And not only just alcohol in abundance, but super duper powerful alcohol in abundance. And I feel like there's this, this negative stereotype, uh, probably more negative than ever before associated with alcohol, like almost to the point where if you're somebody who enjoys alcohol, you're almost socially looked down upon. And I feel like that's scary. Why, why would that be a scary thing? So alcohol, I argue in drunk that alcohol has become more dangerous lately. And by by lately, I mean the last couple hundred years, (laughs) but I'm telling a a very long time scale story. Uh, So two main factors, I call them uh, distillation and isolation. Mm. So for most of our evolutionary history, what we've been drinking has been two to three percent ABV beers and fruit wines maybe coming in a little bit stronger than that. Um, We've been pushing yeast to get tougher and tougher so that we, we've been pushing the boundaries of natural fermentation. So you can get pretty strong beers and wines yeah. now, but still you can't get above 16, 17% with natural fermentation. Um, distillation completely changes that. So once you figure out how to pull off the alcohol and concentrate it using distillation, you can get it you know, up into the 90s ABV. Um, and that's just a completely different animal. It's still just ethanol, but it's in such an incredibly strong concentration. So in the book, I argue for these various benefits for alcohol. Most of them are coming, most of the benefits you capture at about 0.08 BAC, so about two beers in maybe. Yeah. Um, if you're drinking a 2 to 3% beer, you could drink that all day yeah. and stay at 0.08. Yeah. If you're doing shots of vodka, you can blow right past 0.08 into passing out territory in like 20 minutes. So it's just a, our bodies are not designed to deal with alcohol at that concentration. And so it's a much more dangerous and much more addictive form of alcohol. Yeah. And, and it's weird for us to think about this as being different, like, cause relative to our existence, you think of the word precedent, like unprecedented, like what's happening with alcohol is unprecedented, but relative to our point of view, it's always been like this. However, like like you pointed out, it's only in the past two hundred years, maybe maybe four hundred years. If you go to China, yeah, where it really a little bit, a little yeah. bit longer in yeah. China. Yeah. But what's ironic is if you look at the trends, and you point this out in the book, is that 
if you look at China, there's a almost an aversion, like a, 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 a what's it, like a natural aversion away from uh, like our bodies evolved to almost refuse alcohol if you're Chinese or Asian. Well, there is this, so I, in the book I talk about this gene complex. So so if alcohol is a mistake, if our taste for it is just, so the standard story in a, you'll read in a psych 101 textbook is why do we like to drink? Well, it makes us feel good. Okay. Well, why does it make us feel good? Well, because it's hitting this reward circuit just randomly yeah. for no good reason. Um, that's the standard story. And if, if that were true, there should be a lot of pressure to evolutionarily to make us not like alcohol because it's so costly. And we've had this taste for tens of thousands of years. And there sometimes evolution can't solve a problem because the right mutation hasn't popped up. But the right mutation has popped up. So there's a set, it's actually two separate mutations that cause what's sometimes called the Asian flushing syndrome because it started in um, probably around modern day Shanghai, uh, beginning of a rice agriculture seven to 10,000 years ago. And it interferes with your ability to metabolize alcohol. So if you have this set of mutations, drinking alcohol doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel really bad. You get um, your face flushes, you get heart palpitations. And But my argument in the book is that um, if alcohol really were just a mistake, this gene complex should have spread everywhere that there is alcohol, and then we'd be free of this evolutionary mistake. Which leads to the question, why isn't it a mistake? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> what is your argument as to why you know alcohol should be a part of our lives and why it is a part of our lives? Because it has these positive benefits. So um, it reduces stress. The, the crucial ones that I focus on are the enhanced creativity and enhanced group bonding. Mm. Um, so you pointed out uh, distillation and isolation. I never let you get to isolation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, so the set, yeah, the second of the two banes of modern existence is I call isolation. So historically it's been very rare to have private access to alcohol. If you wanted to drink alcohol, it was in a public, usually ceremonial context, uh, typically very ritually controlled. So I talk about the symposium in ancient Greece where, you know, there's a symposiarch who's in charge of the party. Yeah. And he decides how strong to make the wine water mixture and when to pass it around. And he's he's regulating people's drinking, basically. Um, and you see Chinese toasting practices have the same function. And even in what seemed like completely informal circumstances, so going to the pub with your friends, you typically order in rounds, right? So if you and I are at the, the pub and we order a couple of beers and I suck mine down right away, I have to wait for you to finish because we're going to order another round. Yeah. So we have all these ways of kind of subtly controlling people's drinking, you know, or the the cocktail server goes by and does I'm trying to get their attention and they don't make eye contact with me because they, yeah. they want to slow me down a little bit. <laughs> um, so when we're drinking with other people, uh, we have all sorts of ways of moderating each other's drinking. And all of that goes out the window when you could go home alone yeah. and pop open a bottle of tequila and just sit and do shots and watch TV. <laughs> Why is this unique to Western culture? It's not unique to Western culture, but it's worse. It's worse in uh, atomic cultures, if you want to put it that way. Cultures where people live in the suburbs, they often live alone. Um, you can, you work in one place and live in another place. So you, there's no connection between work and your home life. Um, you can, in America, you can go to a drive through liquor store and get alcohol without even 
having contact without getting out of your car. <laughs> we have <laughs> alcohol can, stores on the yeah, highway. Yeah, in New yeah. <laughs> it's, cra- it's crazy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So it just, it's a, uh, it has to do with the way we live in the suburbs, I think. You don't have this as much in, in city culture. I mean, and I would argue too that right now that this culture of alcohols is is evolving or like we're, like I said, there's a negative air associated with alcohol and that if you drink alcohol it's a bad thing and almost like if you go out if you enjoy going to the the bar to do what we do as human beings to Mm -hmm. socialize to sit down to have conversation it's almost like that's a bad habit but what's going to happen if people pick up on that negative association are they going to stop going to to the bar to do this in a public setting in the way we should be doing? Are they going to go home and do it in like the privacy of their own home? Cause they don't want to be criticized. Like, are we, are we pushing people out of a safe environment and into a, a more negative environment by having this negative air associated with alcohol? Like what's, yeah, what's going through your mind? Yeah. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't thought of that. That That's possible. Yeah. If you're stigmatizing the consumption of alcohol and people are going to bring it into the private home, that's yeah. a, that's a very bad, development which is yeah one of the reasons why i wanted to have you here today because i think as restaurants yeah who else would be more responsible than us yeah to educate people on the appropriate relationship with alcohol and the history of alcohol so let's dive into the history like where like why 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 the hell do we how do we evolve to be one of five animals that can consume is it five animals i think i remember in the book there are a few any any animal that um eats fruit Okay. has developed some ability to metabolize ethanol. Why is that? Because fruit starts to rot and produces small quantities of alcohol. So okay. if you're a fruit eater, you need defenses against this poison. Um, so basically the fruit starts to rot. Um, it's being colonized by bacteria and yeast. And the yeast are in this fight with the bacteria for the calories that are in there. And so yeast produce alcohol as kind of a bioweapon because they're more resistant to alcohol than bacteria are. So they produce this toxic substance, kill off the bacteria. They get to enjoy all the, the nutrients in there, but they eventually then shut themselves down with the alcohol, right? That's why there's limits to natural fermentation. So any fruit that falls on the ground is going to get attacked by yeast and bacteria and is going to start to ferment. So, so birds, any species of bird or mammal that eats fruit is going to have some machinery to take ethanol and break it down and get it out of the body as quickly as possible. So we're we're descendants of primates who adapted to eating fruit. Okay. And therefore we have these enzymes that allow us to break alcohol down. So from like 2 million years ago to 200,000 years ago, our ancestors were in the the woods eating fruit and over time we developed to this resistance to alcohol. Yeah, so we have a relative resistance to alcohol. Okay. Um when did that the change of like small quantities of alcohol in the, the food we're eating evolved to us cultivating alcohol a really long time ago. <laughs> so longer than you might think. So the, again, the standard story is that we developed agriculture first and settled down and started growing crops. And then at a certain point, someone left their sourdough starter out too long and it fermented and yeah. we tried it and it made us feel good. Um, that's the stand. So discovering alcohol was a mistake in the standard story. Um, it's looking now in the book I talk about what's sometimes called the beer before bread hypothesis Mm -hmm. that in fact, you see these hunter gatherers at least, um, like 13,000 years ago, settling, not settling down, but coming together to brew beer and have these kind of blowout 
parties. You know, they were erecting these these uh, monumental religious sites and doing some kind of rituals. We don't know what they were doing, um, but they were coming from all over, uh, brewing beer, uh, feasting, and engaging in this ritual behavior. So, if the agricultural revolution was ten thousand years ago, where yeah. we started to come together to cultivate. Uh, crops. When would this be taking this place? This is thirteen. This is several okay. thousand years before that. Okay. So wow. it, this is thousands of years. And it's not just alcohol. I think, which which is worth pointing out. Yeah. Yeah. What so you see, you see the same pattern all around the world. So um, in South America, the ancestor to maize corn is called teosinte, and it's actually if you were interested in making a grain, if you're interested in food, you would ignore this plant because it it produces terrible seeds. You could not make very good grain out of it, but it has this very starchy, sugary um, stock that you can make beer out of. And so clearly that humans noticed that plant and started cultivating it because they were making beer out of it. Chicha. You mentioned it in the book. Where can, I want to find this, you know, (laughs) who sells this? Uh, Teosinte? Yeah. I don't know if it, it must still be around. I guess it still exists. South America more. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it's native too. And, uh, but now they make chicha out of maize because it's maize gives you more uh, starch. But the the upshot, you see this in uh, Australia, you see it in North America, the first cultivated crops seem to be chosen for their psychoactive properties, not for nutrition. And so, so this is a sense in which our desire for intoxication quite literally led to civilization. It was our desire to get drunk that caused us to settle down and start cultivating crops. But how did it serve us? If this is such an evil thing that's so bad for us, and if hunter-gatherers are already territorial and yeah. – like, you would think that this would make us want to kill each other more and get drunk and be jealous or you know whatever. Yeah, that's, a, that's the way in which I think we have a – inaccurate and negative view of the function of alcohol. What's the more accurate view? So alcohol is doing a bunch of different things when it hits the brain. So it is, um, one of the main things I focus on is it's down-regulating the prefrontal cortex. So the PFC is the last part of a human to develop. It's uh, it's very important. It's the, the center of what psychologists call executive function or cognitive control. So your ability to stay focused on a topic, to get to school on time, to um, suppress inappropriate desires or um, uh, resist distractions. This is all PFC. Um, Keeping several things, contradictory things in your head at the same time is very PFC heavy. So it's good. Alcohol starts to turn that down, uh, turn the PFC down. The other thing, main thing it's doing is ramping up things like uh, serotonin, endorphins, uh, things that make you feel good about yourself and also good about other people. Mm. You start to feel better. I start to feel like I'm more handsome and then you're more handsome too. <laughs> I'm funnier, <laughs> you're funnier yeah. after a couple of beers. Um, so these are, these are crucial functions. So um, first of all, we're potentially, we're primates. We, as you mentioned, we're kind of territorial. We're prone to conflict. If you want to look at our nearest ancestors, the chimpanzees, um, they roam in these very territorial tribes. And if they run into a group of strangers, they usually tear them apart. Um, they're, they're very violent. Humans seem to have figured out a way to get past that tribalism and live in these really large societies where we're interacting with strangers all the time yeah. and not tearing them limb from limb. You mentioned Dunbar, I think, a couple yeah. times, don't you? Do you know him personally by chance? I've never met him, actually. I've corresponded I, with him. He's somebody I would love to get on the show. He would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. What is, what's Dunbar? 
Uh, so he's a uh, Robin Dunbar is a, a anthro- anthropologist <laughs> yeah. in um, in the UK, and he he really has done some crucial work on human sociality. Uh, his he's famous for the Dunbar number, which yes. is about the you know the most people you kind of keep track of. Yeah, so and, for chimps, I think it's like fifty. Yeah, and so it's more for humans, right? Yeah. So he's one of the people who's argued our big part of function of our big brains is to track social relations. Yes. Um, but more recently, he's actually been one of the few, very few anthropologists who's taken seriously the role of intoxicants in helping people get past cooperation problems. Um, yeah. So he's he's and he's been running some really interesting studies on pub culture in the UK. Yeah. So um, I think I talk a little bit in the book about some of his findings mm-hmm. that um, people who have a local, so people who have a pub that they go to regularly, have all these better outcomes opposite of isolation yeah opposite of isolation right they have a regular place where people know them they go they drink in public um they see their friends it seems to increase have all these good outcomes uh they have better mood they live longer they're healthier yeah so going back ten thousand plus years ago um we're our the dunbar's number from what i understand is about 150 relationships is what we can manage but we are only in hunter gatherer packs of like 40 to 20 is around the number that we used to like travel with. Right. Yeah. So what, why have more, what, why was there a, a cushion there between what we can manage and what we traveled in? Yeah. So we need to, um, for certain problems, we need more, we need bigger numbers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are the problems we need to solve? Um, innovation. So humans, humans, individual humans, are stupid and weak, f- frankly. <laughs> like if you, you know, I pointed out at some point, if you like parachuted a chimpanzee and a human down into some strange place and asked them to survive, the chimp would outcompete oh, the yeah. human almost certainly. Um, the reason we're actually so, we put chimps in zoos and not the other way around is that we're communal. So we we have figured out a way to cooperate with one another and share information uh, share innovations and crucially then um, pass them down culturally. Mm-hmm. So I talk in the book about just what an odd primate we are. And one of the ways we're odd is that we're completely dependent on tools and technology. There's good evidence that the bigger your social group, the better you're going to innovate. You have more minds coming up with ideas and exchanging them with one another. Why is that? Because you just need the individual human mind is dumb the, the communal mind is smart. Yeah. Um, so the bigger your group, so there's good evidence that, um, uh, and when there are accidents, like when Tasmania got cut off, uh, from mainland Australia at, uh, at the, before they, when they were all together, they all the same kind of technology level as mainland Australia and Tasmania. Tasmania gets cut off when the strait fills mm-hmm. with water. And over the next several thousand years, they lose their technology. They lose their kits because you have a small group. People forget how to do it. Yeah. Um, Somebody, the one guy who knows how to make the harpoon dies early and he never taught anyone else how to do it. And yeah. You're kind of screwed. Um, so you need lots of people to come up with both come up with new ideas yeah. and accurately transmit the good ideas that people in the past have come up with. Yeah. The, the analogy I like to use is batteries. Yeah. Um, like if you can imagine a bunch of batteries on uh, a table, um, if you don't connect those batteries isolated, those batteries yeah. only have what they have. But yeah. if you connect them, then the you get access to the to the collective. So, yeah, that's a good analogy. You know, yeah, and that's that's the it's the collective consciousness of like, hey, like, and this is why we're so effective in numbers because we all like 
we can only do so much by ourselves. Mm -hmm. But the tribe, if we're in a big group of people, then we then we benefit from everyone's strengths. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the trick then is how do you get those batteries to sit quietly next to one another and hook up <laughs> when their tendency is to tear each other apart, right? Yeah. So that's um, kind of where we left off. Yeah. So that's what alcohol is doing. So it's um, in terms of the bonding function, we often, when we're cooperating in a group, we face uh, these cooperation dilemmas that go by different names, sometimes called the prisoner's dilemma. Um, you could think of the tragedy of the commons. They all have a similar structure, which is that if I'm going to pursue my narrow, selfish interest, and you are also doing that, we'll get a worse outcome than if we actually cooperate and work toward the group good. If we work toward the group good and we trust one another, um, we're gonna, actually going to get a better payoff in the end than if we were selfish. There are yeah. a lot of situations where this is the case, um, ranging from like helping your friend move a couch to you know, uh, nuclear strategy yeah. <laughs> um, treaties. Um, so the problem with these situations, though, is that if I trust you and I work toward the group good instead of my own narrow uh, interest, I'm vulnerable to being taken advantage of. I'm vulnerable to what economists call defection. So that's where you pretend to cooperate, but then when push comes to shove, you take the benefit and run away. Um, so humans are very sensitive to that danger, and we're constantly sussing each other out. So trying to decide, is this person someone I can trust? And we need to be able to do that. We need to find people we can trust. One of the ways al alcohol helps with this is that by down-regulating the prefrontal cortex, it's making it harder for you or me to lie. Mm. Um, so if, when I, if I'm lying to you, if, if you say, Hey, you know, I know you're my good friend, uh, I'll come help you move my, I'll come help you move your couch and you'll always help me too. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have no intention of helping you. Um, I've got to keep, if I'm faking something, I've got to keep in mind both what I'm telling you is true and, and the fact that I know that something different is true. I have to keep those two things separate. I need to suppress any facial expression or emotional reaction that has to do with what is what I know is true, but it's different from what I'm telling you. It's And I have to fake the appropriate signals that would go along with the fake thing that I'm telling you. It's really PFC heavy operation. So if I can, if we can sit and drink a substance that's going to mess with our PFCs, it, I, in the book, I compare it to shaking hands, mm -hmm. right? We meet and we shake hands to show we're not carrying a weapon. Yes we have a couple of beers and I'm basically taking my PFC out and putting it on the table and saying, <laughs> I'm cognitively disarmed. Yeah. I'm disarming can, my yeah. ability to be a sketchy mofo. Yeah. Um, um, and at the same time, we're ramping up these pro-social chemicals in the body that actually make us less likely to want to cheat. So there's good evidence that, um, in one study, when you, you shoot serotonin up someone's nose, they, they cheat less in economic games. Yeah. So, so we're both making it harder to cheat, and also reducing the motivation to cheat. Yeah. So you can see why this would be beneficial in a situation where all of a sudden we go from existing in bands of hunter-gatherer groups of like 20 to 40 people with being able to maybe manage three other tribes that gets us to that 150 to now we are in a, a city of 1,000 people. Yeah. Right? And what, what happens when you take somebody – that is used to managing very few relationships and you put them in a group of a thousand people answer that when we come back from our break recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. 
Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And where we left off in the conversation is basically now we understand what alcohol does to us on a physical, physiological, you know, like it's it's helping us coexist with people and it's, it's giving us chemicals that we need to be happy. Um, but what happens when you go from these smaller groups to groups of say a thousand from like 150 to a thousand like what happens inside of us we get stressed (laughs) it's stressful um so that's another function of alcohol so it both uh, the desire for alcohol kind of convinced us to stop roaming around in hunter-gatherer bands and settle down into denser settlements yeah but then once we're there it also helped us to adapt to this this novel problem of having to be kind of living rubbing shoulders with other people all the time it helps uh, with anxiety. Helps with anxiety. Helps with stress. Um, There's a good reason why people at the end of a hard day, you know, pour themselves a glass of wine or yeah. something. Um, you know, uh, it modulates our mood in a positive way. Yeah. Again, in moderation. So the danger is 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 that you would you would drink too much. But again, in our evolutionary environment, it's kind of it was kind of hard to drink too much because we had alcohol in such a weak form, um, and our access to it was controlled socially. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, it, it took literally a tribe, a group of people to cultivate enough alcohol for what, a ceremony? Yeah, they probably <laughs> had a constant yeah. supply of yeah. beer, um, especially once they settled down. But again, this is like 2 to 3% ABV yeah. beer. Um, it's it's not super strong. You could, well, you could work all day yeah. and in the fields and be drinking this as for your hydration and not get too drunk. And I don't want to give away your entire book, obviously. I want to leave something for the listener or the, the listeners to go read, but... Also, there's the argument that um, alcohol is a way of preserving calories. Yeah. So you there, know, it has other functions. And, and so, um, you know, the dominant story has been that our taste for alcohol is an evolutionary mistake. Yeah. It's a hijack. So it's just hijacking uh, pleasure centers in the brain. There are various what I call mismatch theories running around. So these theories argue that there was an adaptive function to alcohol in our past 
but that's not true anymore. The function's gone. And one of those stories is that alcohol preserves calories. Yeah. Um, like how many calories are in a beer? 200? A lot. Yeah. Um, the problem is beer doesn't last very – before hops, yeah. beer was pretty perishable. Mm-hmm. So like the chicha that they make in South America has to be drunk in yeah. two or three days. But wine, for example. Wine preserves it longer. And then, of course, once you get distilled alcohol, it preserves it for a really long time. Yeah. Um, but that's that's really recent. So so there are some functions. So it, it could preserve calories for a certain amount of time. That may be part of it. Um, it also, there's the dirty water hypothesis that in places where the water wasn't safe to drink, which is in a lot of places in early settlements, uh, if you ferment the water into beer, it becomes potable. So that's probably part of what's going on, but can't be the whole story because the other way to make water safe is just to boil it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. We have much easier ways to purify water than, than this very elaborate process of making beer. Um, one other possibility is what's called biological ennoblement. So if you take grain and ferment it into beer, the activity of the yeast adds some really important micronutrients like B vitamins and things. And so, um, some archeologists think that this is probably why early agriculturists who were eating really poor diets, I mean, they're eating basically like for long periods of time, just bread and water, um, and beer <laughs> probably survived because that beer was giving them some important micronutrients they used to get from vegetables and meat. Got it. Um, so it's not just to get messed up. There's other that, things going there are, on. There are other things, things going on, yeah. but they're they're all they're kind of side players. I think yeah. the the really crucial functions are linked to the intoxication. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think there's one other big element that hasn't quite fully come out yet. Uh, and anyone listening to this uh, who's running a restaurant. Um, knows the importance of culture, right? This is why we have vision statements. This is why we have mission statements. This is why we have core values. Uh, and you alluded to this earlier that when when we said, "Hey, let's all create this thing so we can get fucked up," and like now we have a shared a, like mission, mm-hmm. right? Now we all have the same purpose. Now we believe in something similar. So it starts create it creates common ground. It brings mm-hmm. people together for a shared purpose, which is does what to culture. It makes it more cohesive. Yeah. It, it makes us, it gives us a sense of being part of a bigger group. And there's good, so people have kind of sensed this for a long time. There's actually, I look in the book at experimental evidence mm-hmm. for this, that um, if you give subjects uh, alcoholic drinks as opposed to placebo drinks that they think is alcohol, um, they they report feeling closer to the people they're talking to. They uh, They feel more like a bonded group. If you look at the videos, so I give a, I, in the book, I provide a still of one of these videos and people are smiling and laughing and it's a real laugh. It's a, mm. what's called a Duchenne smile, a genuine smile, not a fake social one. Um, so I want to do a whole episode on smiles, by the way, because it's yeah. so important. I think in the restaurant industry, like being mindful of your smile. Yeah. They say smile with your eyes. And that's, I think that's the smile you're talking the about. The Duchenne smile yeah. is the one with your eye. It's the sincere one, right? Yeah. And the problem is it's, well, the problem it's it's hard to fake, and that's actually a design feature. <laughs> um, it's part of the machinery that we use when we're figuring out if we can trust someone yeah. or not. Is is uh, sincere it's versus that prefrontal insincere. cortex kicking in? Yeah, the, yeah, when the PFC is smiling, we don't like it. That's yeah. the fake, you know, for a for a camera smile. Yeah, um, yeah. So it makes us it makes us feel bonded to people, and that's yeah. really crucial. Um, where I was going with this was the idea of like the ritual associated. Yeah. With alcohol. So what does ritual do for culture? So human cultures that use alcohol 
have always viewed it with a kind of a little bit of wariness, right? Um, every culture that uses alcohol is worried about the problems of excess and they all consciously or not have designed ritual features to help regulate our consumption. And so in the book, I talk about, uh, Northern versus Southern drinking cultures, and this is referring to Europe. Um, so this is a really good example of how culture matters. So, Mm -hmm. um, Southern drinking cultures, you think of Italy or Spain, uh, you're drinking mostly beer and wine. You're always drinking in the context of a meal. It's always around the meal table, lunch or dinner table. It's everyone. So grandparents, parents, kids, uh, everyone's together. Uh, kids are included. So kids get a little bit of wine watered down just could show them that this is a normal part of life is yeah, a little bit of wine with dinner or, or lunch. Uh, getting drunk to the point of being visibly inebriated is not cool. There, it's kind of frowned upon. It's a little bit shameful mm-hmm. to get visibly drunk. When you live in a culture like this, you tend not to drink to excess. Um, so if uh, you look at, it's probably the case that humans as a species probably about 15% of humans have trouble drinking safely. They have a, a, they're prone to alcoholism for, to various degrees. And yet if you look at alcoholism rates around the world, they really vary. And this has got to be then culture mm. moderating the genetic propensity. Um, so in Italy, very high per capita alcohol consumption. They drink a lot of alcohol, very low alcoholism rates. Um, then you contrast that culture with northern drinking cultures, so this is, you think of Russia or Denmark or the U.S., really. We inherited this culture. Yeah, Vikings. Um, yeah, yeah. Like you're drinking primarily uh, distilled liquors. You're often drinking in all-male groups or all-female groups. Um, you're not, it's not kind of ecologically mixed. Uh, you're not having food. You're just drinking. And you're drinking to get drunk. And the point is to get drunk. And if you're not getting visibly drunk, there's something a little bit wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Like it's not cool to not get drunk. Um, And it's taboo for kids. You know, kids aren't supposed to do it. It's only a grown up thing. When you have that kind of culture, you're, you're almost setting up unhealthy drinking habits. And so alcoholism rates in Northern drinking cultures are much higher than they are in Southern drinking cultures, even when the amount of alcohol being consumed isn't as high. Mm -hmm. So culture matters. For sure. Uh, You also point out, that there is circumstances where, uh, and you know, dare I, I don't, I'm not trying to be an advocate for uh, binge drinking or drinking to get really messed up, to, like to drink hard. Um, we've all been there, uh, but there's argument that there's good that comes from that. That to the to really you know tie one on yeah. in a group has some benefits. Not that I'm encouraging people to do that regularly, but what <laughs> are those benefits? So I don't talk about those as much because it's a it's a trickier topic, yeah. right? It's that type of use of alcohol can go sideways a lot oh, yeah. more easily. Um, but the the point there, if that starts to get more into general kind of costly display hazing behavior. So we're getting together, we're getting really drunk, we're really down regulating our PFC. Um, we know that we're going to be hurting in the morning and yet we're doing it together and we're all going to be hurting together in the morning. It's a, it's similar to hazing rituals where you're showing that you're really part of the group because you're willing to really make yourself vulnerable and really put yourself in some pain 
because you believe in the group and you're one of the group. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the, the point that I'm alluding to is as you're turning down the frontal cortex and you really have it almost completely shut off. Yeah. The, the amount of candor that comes out in conversation, um, where if you, if you have something, the example you use in the book is if you're about to go into war in yeah. battle, yeah. um, and you need a, a tight group. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if you're, if you're harboring anything, if you're holding anything, if you're pissed off at somebody, yeah. that's going to come out the night right. before you go into battle. So you're going to get whatever, you know, stuff that you need to get out, out that might help you move forward. Yep. Right? Yeah. So again, I'm not encouraging everyone to get yeah. out there, but there but these are things when we're working in groups of people, it's good that people understand it. Like candor is important. Yeah. 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 So that's that, that's the, I talked in the case of the Navy SEALs training. So that was the last night of training. The, 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 uh, the trainer takes them out and gets them really drunk. Um, and the, that is the idea, right? Any kind of lingering, um, suspicion or, um, rivalry or annoyance just comes out and you clear it out. Um, people also do this in kind of dyadic situations where, um, I actually took this part out of the book cause it was, we need, it's getting too long. Um, but you know, I've had, I can think of at least one example where, you know, in a difficult point in a friendship with someone and we're, we're not sure why. And, um, and you, you meet and you get really drunk and that allows you to kind of, especially I think in some cases men need this more than women um, have more difficulty kind of being honest or being vulnerable emotionally. Um, It gives you a chance to kind of clear the air and get to the heart of what's going on in a way you would not if you were drinking coffee or Mm -hmm. even just having like a glass or two of wine. Um, So there are occasional um, uses for blowing past 0.08 BAC. But the vast majority of the functions that I'm talking about are really happening at pretty pretty moderate levels of inebriation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the history of alcohol and um, how alcohol got, helped us get to modern-day civilization, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is important as far as you know why we should maybe look at alcohol through a more positive lens? Well, we haven't talked much about the creativity function. Yeah. Um, so the um, that's one of the really central functions of alcohol. Because we're so dependent on tools as a species, we're dependent on creativity. You've got the environment's changing. We need new tools. We're competing with other cultural groups who maybe have better tool sets than we do, and we've got to keep up. So we're constantly having to innovate. The problem is when you're being run by your PFC, you're not very good at creativity. If you want to think of it, the PFC is kind of more like a laser. It keeps you really focused on something. It helps you go from A to B to C in a disciplined way. But sometimes for creativity, you usually need an insight. Sometimes psychologists talk about lateral thinking. You need to have a kind of out-of-the-box idea mm-hmm. where you connect things that aren't obviously connected. Yeah. You can't do that when the PFC is in charge. The PFC just wants to keep going down this path. Yeah. To get an insight, you need parts of your brain talking that normally aren't allowed to talk to each other. Yeah. And this is why you see children being so creative. Yeah. They don't have PFCs yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I talk about, you know, I look at uh, Alison Gopnik's work. She's a psychologist at uh, Berkeley and she's shown that little kids are great at these, these insight tasks, these creativity tasks yeah. and your ability to solve these tasks just goes down in a linear fashion as you, as your PFC develops. Yeah. I, I lay that graph right next to the PFC development graph. Um, so it's, you know, uh, evolution had this problem where it wants us to be grown ups. 
it needs us to be able to tie our shoes in the morning and get to work on time. Winter's coming. Focus. Winter's coming, yeah. you, you know, be, di- be disciplined. <laughs> yeah. um, but that reduces our creativity. And so, and it reduces our receptiveness to cultural information. It's, it's why it's easy to learn a language when you're a kid and hard yeah. as an adult. Um, and so the slu- one of the solutions Evolution came up with was to slow walk the PFC. So it doesn't develop fully until you're in your mid twenties, which is really late. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so you're, you're 26 usually on average for well, a little. Right? Yeah. Um, but you know, your body has been completely yeah. physically mature for a long time and you still, this part of your brain's not done cooking yet. And that seems to be a result. I think it's a reflection of this design trade off. They want evolution wants you to stay flexible as long as possible. Um, then human beings in culture, because we're very clever tool users, figured out that, hey, another way to kind of balance these two, this tension is to find something that will turn your PFC down for a few hours so you can regain that kind of childlike creativity. But then when you come out of it, you're still a grown-up and yeah. you know what's important and you know what you need to do. And that's what alcohol is, right? Yeah. It's a technology for temporarily putting you back into this super flexible state of mind you used to have when you were five or six years old. Yeah. And I just can't help but think of the point that you made earlier that when we get together, we have the, um, the potential energy of all the minds that mm-hmm. are there versus our single mind alone. Right. Yeah. Now, um, in like the pub setting, right. Where now you have all these people coming together to sit down around a table to shut off that prefrontal cortex PFC and, get creative collectively. Yeah. Yeah. Where's what's the power in that? So that's, this is this kind of exponential creativity. So it's individually, it's making you individually more creative. You're Mm going to have more creative ideas. It's making me individually more creative. It's also disinhibiting us. Right. So when uh, one beer ago, you would have thought been embarrassed about coming, blurting out this idea. Now you'll just blurt it out. Right. And maybe it needed to be blurted out. It's actually a good idea. Um, we're also feeling better about each other. So you're so less anxious to you're share. You're less anxious to share. You're more um, open-minded to new ideas. So it's it's individually making us more creative, and then it's ramping up group innovation, and that's really the crucial part. So you see this. You know, I talk about all these organizations that take advantage of this, that use alcohol in a strategic way to help people collaborate and innovate in groups in a way they wouldn't be able to over coffee or kombucha, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious. We mentioned how the prefrontal cortex evolves over time. Uh, you don't really have it fully developed until your mid to late twenties. What happens when like 18 year olds, 19 year olds are drinking to abundance and they don't, and their, their frontal cortex is not even fully developed. Like, is there an effect there? Yeah, it's really bad. It's, it's really bad to deregulate to mess with something that isn't fully developed yet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've been trying to emphasize this with my daughter. My daughter's almost 16 and, you know, she's at that age where kids are experimenting with alcohol. Um, That's about the the age I was when I snuck a few beers in my tent during a family party. Yeah. 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 I was, I was kind of a dork. I didn't start early. So it's hard (laughs) dealing with like a normally developing teenager because I didn't do any of this stuff in high school, but um, I'm told it's developmentally normal. Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to get her to understand is that, you know, I've just wrote a book about the use of alcohol and how it's really crucial for civilization, but 
you know, she's not even 16 yet. Her PFC is nowhere near yeah. fully developed. So, um, you know, having a little, so she's grown up in a Southern drinking culture because my ex-wife's Italian and we kind of spent a lot of time in Italy. And I kind of, I think in the Bay Area kind of developed this drinking culture anyway. Um, so she's grown up, you know, having a little bit of wine with dinner, getting to taste wine from her glass. Um, and, you know, she she's incorporated, she understands alcohol as part of a normal uh, enjoyable meal, but I'm trying to impress upon her that, you know, her friends were going out and doing shots of tequila, you know, getting into their parents' liquor cabinet. Um, that's just so dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous for human, like a full ass adults. Yeah. yeah, And that's kind of one of the reasons why I feel like it's so necessary for us to have this conversation because I just think that we're just so used to drinking distilled booze shots after shots after shots. And that's been normalized. And I think that the fact that yeah. that's normalized is part of our issue with alcohol because it's truly unprecedented as, as in the bigger scheme of things. Yeah. To our perspective, normal. If we had, a, you know, I don't know, some like hunter, not even a hunter. Oh, well, yeah. Like a, the, towards the end of the hunter gatherer era into civilization 10,000 years ago, and you were to put the, one of those mofos in a bar today yeah. and they saw how we were drinking and what, what we were drinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's unprecedented. Yeah, so we we have much more dangerous forms of alcohol, and, and we, we need and we're lo- and we're losing. I think crucially, we're losing some of our protective rituals around drinking. Like right? what? Just drinking in public in a social setting with food. You know, I think we're losing the, that. We're, we are because people are living more alone. They're mm-hmm. living in suburbs. Um, I think the the pandemic was a great natural experiment, right? You you never get human subject approval to do this, but it happened anyway. Yeah. Which is large numbers of people got told you need to stay home and not leave your house, but you could have as much alcohol as you want. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, right? <laughs> and it's there's evidence that problem drinking just went crazy during the pandemic. I'll admit, um I so when during the pandemic, I was in Austin, Texas. I was yeah. living with a couple, um, and they had their like nighttime routine, and I didn't want to like, get in the into the middle of that, yeah. you know. So I would go off to my my you know wing of the house, and I would just do my own thing, and I was alone. Yeah, and I noticed very early on in that, um, I found myself drinking every night. Yeah, like yeah, th- like four or five drinks. A yeah, night, which is more like if I'm having if I'm drinking on my own, maybe two drinks sometimes three, yeah, you know, but all of a sudden, like, I just wanted to feel something, yeah, you know, like, yeah. I just want to feel something. I can't get any feel goods from anybody. Yeah. Give me something. And I quickly was like, this is bad. Yeah. And then I started smoking weed. Every day. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you I was like, well, it's not as bad. Yeah. Like I'm going to replace this habit, <laughs> yeah. um, but still not good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you're missing the endorphins and stuff you get from real human social yeah. action interaction. And you're missing all the kind of uh, signals of moderation that you get when you're drinking with others. I had yeah. a similar problem in the pandemic because I was, um, I was my, I'm in a long distance relationship across an international border. And so, and I was the only one who could travel during the really harsh uh, lockdown phase because I have passports on both Mm -hmm. sides of the border. So I would come to visit my partner. And then when I went home, I had to quarantine for two weeks. Mm -hmm. So I had to sit alone in my apartment by myself, no human contact for two weeks. Um, but I could, my local, um, taqueria would deliver me a a case of tequila if I wanted. (laughs) So I had endless alcohol at my disposal and I couldn't leave the house. And that was really, my drinking got 
really, I think, unhealthy during yeah. the pandemic. Um, and the book, we should mention, I mean, the title's Drunk, yeah. but it's really, you cover all intoxicants, yeah. you know, but you you make the argument that you think alcohol is the most prevalent, um, which is a good argument. But um, is it worth bringing other, I think it is kind of worth bringing other narcotics into the conversation. In yeah, the- there are other chemical intoxicants that have some similar functions to alcohol. So cannabis is one of them. Cannabis yeah. downregulates your PFC. It, it upregulates some of these feel-good social hormones. Yeah. Um, the reason that we don't, that restaurants don't serve cannabis cigarettes along with your pasta dish. Um, the reason that we don't use these drugs at we would you know, sell gatherings. a lot more food if we did. It's, yeah, maybe if people got the munchies, but <laughs> we don't use cannabis as a social social drug because it's not a good social drug. Yeah. And that's I've noticed that. Why is that? Uh, first of all, it has. The, I think the biggest problem is that it has very variable effects across individuals. Mm-hmm. So alcohol is pretty consistent what it does to people. Cannabis. So for me, for instance, it just I smoke and I get for a minute super paranoid, and then I fall asleep. Like that's it. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't have any positive social functions. And people have said, oh, you just have to try this strain of sativa, or and that's. Is bullshit. It, every single strain of everything does the same thing to me. Yeah, for um, you, and that might be true for somebody else though, because like you pointed out, it has a wide effect. To yeah, some people. people. I had friends in grad school who they would smoke and they would want to go out dancing yeah. and like talk about philosophy, and I was just like, dude, shut up! I want to go to sleep. And, <laughs> and don't I sound stupid? Yeah. Like, why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> and then I'd fall asleep. <laughs> so it's a really, it's a, it's not a good social drug doesn't have variable effects on different individuals. Um, it's also cannabis is hard to dose. Mm. If you're smoking it, you got to know how to kind of hold it in your lungs. If you're, if you're eating it, um, the, the delay between when you ingest it and when it hits your brain is so long that it's hard to dose. Mm -hmm. Whereas a beer, you take a sip of beer, you instantly kind of know how it's affecting you. You know how much you can drink. So alcohol is just easier to dose. It's more consistent across individuals. It's unfortunate because cannabis would be better in the sense that it's um, not physically addictive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the crucial benefit of cannabis. Yeah. I, I've noticed um, this is something, you know, as I learn about myself and the use, my use of substance, I've discovered that if I, if I want me time, yeah, I'm going to smoke a joint. Yeah, but it's not great for social for like negotiating or a like, contract, yeah, like an intimate conversation <laughs> yeah. with one other person yeah. where yeah. you can just kind of get it helps you get creative and you can brainstorm. Yeah. Socially, like if I know I'm meeting a bunch of people, I'm not going to get stoned yeah. because yeah. I will be a weirdo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not a good social drug, um, yeah. which is a shame. Uh, it would, but we've been cultivating cannabis for a really, really long time. And it's significant that it hasn't become the king of intoxicants yeah. and alcohol has. I so. think mushrooms too are another one um, that have, has a really bad reputation. No, well, it's getting re it's getting rehabilitated now, yeah. right, with microdosing and stuff. But yeah, so I also discuss psychedelics, and the problem with psychedelics is they're just so powerful; they completely disassociate you for a really long period of time. So again, it's not you're not going to like have a long work day. And then meet your colleagues after work and drop acid and then go home. You just can't do it because it lasts too long. It's too powerful. Um, So psychedelics are too strong. Cannabis is too variable. Um, Alcohol kind of hits that sweet spot where it's it's disinhibiting us. It's depatterning our brains. 
but it's doing so in a really predictable, gentle way yeah. that's consistent across individuals. Yeah. Again, for the listeners, the whole purpose of the today's conversation is to educate you on the product that you make most of your margin, like where, you, yeah. where most of your profit comes from, the thing that's saving your business. <sighs> you should probably know the history of this and the, 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 how it affects people to like, the, I mean, I think this is super important. Um, but I would argue too, that as we move into the future, as the world becomes much more open-minded, um, you're seeing it with cannabis now in the past 10 years, like it's been like a night and day shift as real soon, like it might be possible for restaurants to be selling this, you know, in like that type of setting, who knows, maybe there might be some facilities that, serve mushrooms in 10 or 15 years as we continue. Those don't really pair well with. No, but like (laughs) the point I'm trying to make is like this, we're, we're in the business of consumption. Yeah. We're putting things into our bodies to either sack, you know, to um, fill our bellies with with nutrients or to make us feel good. Right. And there's a good, there's a good chance in 10 years we might end up down this path where we we might be selling this sort of thing. So yeah, I don't think so. I think think alcohol is going to remain central to the restaurant industry yeah. in a way cannabis and psilocybin never will. Maybe it was a stretch. Yeah. Uh, it just, it pairs well with food. It helps you digest. Um, and it's the, in a way the perfect drug. It's, it's not the perfect. It'd be better if it were less physiologically harmful and it would be better if it was less physically addicting. Those are the two main yeah. problems with alcohol, but otherwise it's, if you gave a group of cultural engineers a job and you were like, we need a substance that can do all these things. It's easy to make. It's easy to discover similar effects on people. Easy to dose pairs well with food. Yeah. They would come up with something like alcohol. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. one other thing I wanted to bring to the conversation before we take our, our next break, our next break is, um, this idea that like, like we pointed out, one of the, 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 the benefits of alcohol is that it helped lower our anxieties and our stress because we're now surrounded with all these people, all these social pressures, the, you know, the, the issues with, you know, hierarchy and where do we fit in with that and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, what is our world today compared to say when we were moving into small cities? Mm-hmm. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. So hunter gatherer lifestyle pretty chill. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're, you might you're, have only lived to 50, but it was a very exciting. 50 there's some, <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually they, sometimes you could life, you could live quite long. Yeah. So there's the, the life expectancy of hunter gatherers is gets distorted. There's a lot of infant mortality. Yeah. Um, but you know, you were eating a diverse, uh, diet. You were engaging in activities that were kind of designed to do as homo sapiens. You know, you were hunting things, you were gathering, you were solving problems, Um, and to move from that to like being an early farmer probably really sucked. (laughs) Um, now you got, you're doing this backbreaking labor, but it's really boring and repetitive. Um, you're eating a much more limited diet than you did before. So it, the, the transition from hunting, hunter gathering to agriculture was really bad for most individuals for a really, really long time. It's now it's better because Mm -hmm. of all this technology. And so if we maybe had to go through that stage, um, but alcohol kind of helped ease that transition by relieving stress, making us feel better. Um, we were probably drinking while we were working in the field, you know, these low, low alcohol beers. Um, so it's been a tool along with other tools like religion. So that's what a lot of my previous research has looked at the, the social functions of religion. Um, it's been a tool to help us make that transition and cooperate 
in a way that as primates doesn't come entirely natural to us. Yeah. I and mean, we started talking about this when we said like at, when the, the pandemic started, we were like forced to, to even more isolate. I think the other argument too, is that we want like, we also have like the, the issue with having access to like literally the whole world. Like we used to be isolated to our little city or mm-hmm. our community. And now with the internet, we have like, we're, we're comparing ourselves to, everyone Mm -hmm. you know um what's going through your mind as i'm kind of sharing this as far as why alcohol might be a good solution to help cope with what's happening well we need we need to be open we need to be receptive and we need to be creative yeah and those are all things that alcohol helps with um you know dealing with new cultures is challenging Mm uh if you can gently turn down your suspicion and your focus and your, you know, your laser focus PFC, it's going to help you be more accepting of difference. And also uh, you're going to be more able to think of creative solutions to problems that you face. So I think that, um, I mean, humans are, are more dependent on creativity than in some ways we ever have been. Oh yeah. I mean, it's the one thing that we still haven't been completely replaced with. Like, like machines are on the rise. They do, physical things much more efficiently and cheaper than we do. Um, but at the same time, like a, a, a robot's not going to design a menu, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to create a new menu item or something like that. They're not yeah. going to, they, they, they lack that creativity for now. <laughs> yeah. For now. Well, AI systems yeah. lack it as well. Yeah. Right. Um, and it may have to do with inherent limitations yeah. to disembodied intelligence. Yeah. A lot of our intelligence is actually uh, parasitic on our embodiment and our socialness. Mm-hmm. Um, one more quick break to thank our sponsors. And I'm going to kind of share where I was going with that train of thought as an individual who has grown up in the restaurant industry. I know that constant phone calls can get in the way of serving your guests in the restaurant, but not answering your phone can mean you're losing potential customers. And I did not know this. I was so surprised when I heard the statistic, 42% of restaurant guests will eat elsewhere if their calls are missed. And I've got to admit that that was just such a surprise to me. That's why I recommend pop menu answering pop menu answering is powered by artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions. Most people call with like, do you have outdoor seating or what are your hours? God, why do they always call these questions? Go to the website. Anyway, within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guest hears, plus create customized greetings. Pop menu answering picks up your phone call 24 7, 365 days a year. Plus, pop menu answering helps you gain insights into what potential customers are typically calling about, turning every phone call into an opportunity. Reclaim the power of your phone now with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable we're back and i was asking you before we went to break uh, about 
you know, the, the modern day living and how modern day living is, again, unprecedented. The, the numbers of people we live in in the city uh, and then beyond that, we're connected digitally with everyone in the world. Um, and the amount of anxiety associated with that and the amount of social pressure associated with that to, to constantly be sharing and doing all this. What Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, that's probably the case. Um, so that's why we need technologies like this one, right? Yeah. That's why we need... Um, what do you mean technologies like this one? Like alcohol. Yeah. Um, and, and alcohol in specifically the context in which we consume it in a restaurant or a pub, you know, in the context of a meal in a context of social interaction in a way where we're supported in our drinking socially. So we have people watching our back. Um, we've got hopefully, you know, responsible servers who will cut us off if we've had too much. Um, and just, you know, as I said, the drinking and rounds and just the effort involved in, you think about the fact that, you know, if I'm in a restaurant and I down my Chardonnay and I decide I want another one, there's a speed bump there where I've got to order that second Chardonnay. That's an effort, right? Yeah. If I'm in my home alone and I down a glass of Chardonnay and I'm walking by the fridge, I can just go droop and yeah. <laughs> refill, right? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a glass in a restaurant is not the same of, ex- as a glass at yeah, home. You don't yeah, go yeah. to the top of the glass. Yeah, it's not metered. <laughs> so um, it just drinking in restaurants and pubs is just – a lot safer for a variety yeah. of reasons. I know you worked in the restaurant industry. At one yeah. Point, yeah. Right? No, for 10 years. For ten, that's how I yeah. put myself through yeah. school. Yeah. So, um, bringing this back to like restaurant business, um, the, in like the, the dialogue that's happening in restaurants right now, the fear associated with, uh, ghost kitchens and delivery being on the rise and everyone freaking out, like our restaurants going to disappear or restaurants going away. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely 100%, don't think no restaurants aren't going anywhere. anywhere. We'd have to become a different species for restaurants yeah. to go away. Um, and one of the reasons why I love studying books like yours and just anthropology in general and uh, evolutionary psychology and the more we figure out what we came from and yeah. how we evolved to get to where we are today, the more we can try to recreate and mimic what made us coexist as happy as possible then yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this movement towards digital, this movement towards ordering my food and bringing it to my house. I think that we as restaurant owners have a social responsibility to educate the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look in this, you mentioned this in the book, if you look at the history of restaurants over time, the public house yeah. and people must be like, he's getting into it again. Cause I echo this a lot, but I think it's really important that we know the history of restaurants too, and our responsibility and our role in bringing people together and being that place for people to share conversation, share drink, to get creative, to talk about issues. Yeah. Like the, the other thing I'm like, social media is dividing us so bad yeah. right now. I don't, I don't need to get into the whole, I like the, the definition of an echo chamber and how it's dividing us. But the long story sh- short is we are very isolated to perspective. And one of the beautiful things about bars in restaurants is that it forces us to sit next to each other, to, to turn off our frontal cortex or pre- our PFC or prefrontal cortex and to talk, to talk to people, to listen to perspective who are your friends, yeah. you know, yeah. what's, I don't want it, this to become my, no, this, like so this, I make this, I make the same argument yeah. and you know, there's some evidence that, uh, with the, you know, it used to be the case in Washington, D.C. that 
uh, lawmakers after session, Congress session was over, would go hit a, f- a few bars. They would frequent the same bars. And you'd have people drinking together who, you know, earlier in the day were on either side of a fight in, in Congress. And they would sit down and drink and argue and drink and argue. And they would downregulate their PFCs. And they would see each other's points yes. a lot more. And so um, I think there's probably a direct connection between the, you know, then it's became unfashionable to drink and there were worries about, you know, sexual harassment and uh, drunk driving. And so um, lawmakers tend to not mingle over alcohol the way they used to. And I think that's directly led to polarization. Of of course. Uh, Do you follow Simon Sinek's work? No. Oh, so he's the author that wrote um, Start With Why and uh, Leaders Eat Last. And But he, he talks about this um, in that in one of his books. I can't remember that up to like 50 years ago, like if you were in if you were in Senate, yeah, you didn't phone in. You flew yeah, in. You flew in. And you, you were forced to be friends with the opposition. Yeah. Uh, but we weren't so opposite then. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. And I think that's another I think I think it should be mandatory. If you are in Senate, if you're in if you're a politician and you're yeah, you, I think you should be forced to sit at the same table, you know. Um, yeah, you miss something when you miss that. Um and you know, th- there's I read an interesting thing about Joe Biden that um for most of his career he would famously uh take the train home every day at the end of the day to go back to Delaware to see his family, which is sweet. But he was missing then all that socializing time um, in Washington. Mm. And so um, you need – and this is, you know, people don't socialize across party lines in informal locations like pubs as much as they used to. And to the degree that they do, um, I think you would see some improvement in people's behavior. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Um, so that was one thing that I, I really wanted to like bring to today's conversation. You know, the mission statement here is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And um, I think you know it's it's so important that we fully understand our relationship with alcohol, um, why it was beneficial. And I think, honestly speaking, your book helped me um, under, better my relationship with alcohol. Like my, my rule right now is I don't drink alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one good rule to have. If you, if you are somebody who's struggling with alcohol, maybe you're not, you know, at the point where you need to go to, to AA, yeah. but you're, you're seeing a trend. Yeah. I'll admit I was definitely there yeah. at one point where I noticed my, my rate of consumption increased, um, drinking alone increased. I also live alone. So, yeah. you yeah. know, it's, it's tough. Um, and, and after reading your book, after fully understanding the history and the evolution of our relationship with alcohol, I was like, this is bad. Yeah. I shouldn't do this. Like I'm, I'm so privileged to be able to do this. Yeah. Like distilled the alcohol is only 200 years old. Fuck that shit. I'm going to stay away from like, that's yeah. dangerous. Yeah. You know, it just understanding the history in it, it, it for me, this really improved my, my relationship with alcohol. No, that's great. That's I what know. I was hoping to do. Yeah. And I think the problem is, you know, up until now we've been flying blind when it comes to alcohol because we've just had an inaccurate view scientifically about what its role is in human life. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, the, the view and you'll still, you know, you look at a WHO publication or, um, reads thing in the Lancet, it's this purely medicalized lens where it's all about, you know, the negative impact of alcohol on us physiologically. There's nothing about the social functions, creativity functions. And unless you understand how alcohol has been used and what its role has been, 
you you have no intelligent way to decide what its role in your own life or your own organization should be. Yeah. And you can I it's perfectly rational that you could read my book, you know, finally understand. I think we have it we've always humans have always had a kind of intuitive sense of what the functions of alcohol are, but it's really important to actually articulate them so that they're out there on the table and they can be part of decision making. So, you know, once you understand what the functions are, you understand the dangers, you're in a position to uh, both decide whether or not you want to use alcohol in your life. And if you are, maybe come up with strategies to use it more safely. I'm going to avoid distilled liquors. I'm going to only drink and with other people in public. Um, that's the way to kind of capture the benefits without, well, you're, minimizing the downsides. Collectively use it as a tool. Con- conscious consumption is I yeah. think, the term you use yeah. in the book, right? Yeah. What, what is conscious consumption? It's consuming without blindly just downing Not alcohol, knowing. without thinking about yeah. what you're doing. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, thoughtful, mindful drinking, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then I think the restaurant industry and the drinks industry and the restaurant industry need to do a much better job of understanding why they sell alcohol. Like I think the, um, you know, I sometimes talk to the, the drinks industry and I'm trying to get them out of their, this defensive crouch they're in where from a public policy perspective, again, um, Alcohol's equated to nicotine and junk food and pornography, right? It's this vice that we have to let people sell because people want it, but we really, our goal should be to kind of legislate it out of existence or tax it out of existence. Um, and the problem with that is that alcohol is just a different thing than mm-hmm. these other vices. That's, I mean, if there's a central message of drunk, it's that um, alcohol is not like our taste for nicotine or our taste for junk food, it actually has a social, both social and individual functions that are very important. And so it's not, it's a different class of substance. Mm. And so I think that the drinks industry has to be a little less defensive about this and make that positive case. Yeah. And, and restaurants have to also step up and make the positive case that, you know, we're crucial for societies to function properly. Mm -hmm. If you don't have places for people to gather over food and alcohol in an informal communal way, your society is going to get really weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I had a train of thought and it lost my mind. Hopefully it comes back to me. Um, uh, it was really good. I was, you know, when they always say like, you stop thinking, get out of your head and listen, yeah. and, but then you lose the thing that you, you want to yeah, say. Yeah, like yeah. I'm trying to be better about listening and not doing that, but then I forget the thing to say. Right. Um, I mean, we've talked about a lot today. Um, the one, the one thing I, I absolutely want to talk about before we, we wrap it up, um, is this idea of, you know, the, again, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, where we are today in the industry and how we're moving forward, uh, there's a lot of dialogue about like what's the best business model. Like we 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 operate on this old broken business model of like, for example, tipping is one thing that there's a lot of conversation around today. Yeah. And you make a really great point in your book that uh, you, you use an argument for why we should abandon tipping culture. Yeah, what is that argument? So when I was a waiter in San Francisco in the 90s, I was completely dependent on tips, yeah. right? So I, I got I earned some alter, alternate minimum wage. I think it was like $1.75 an hour or something yeah. ridiculous because I was dependent on tips. Um, how do you get tips? You sell a lot of alcohol, right? You, that's where the margins are in the restaurant industry. That's Why how you that run bad? up your tab. <laughs> um, 
And this is so, you know, when you make someone reliant on tips, you create a a tension between what their self-interest is and what their job should be. So So the self-interest of the bartender, if they're relying on tips, is giving that patron everything they ask for to make them happy. Everything they ask for and more. (laughs) And not denying them anything. Because if you piss them off by denying them something... You just spent the past three hours hours making no money. In one minute pissing them (laughs) off. Yeah, Yeah, and you've now lost... I mean, I was getting taxed on what I should have made. So when someone stiffed me, I was actually losing money. Um, So... Yeah, this is, there's basically what your your job should be as a, as someone in the restaurant industry who serves alcohol to other human beings, you, your job should be that of the symposiarch at a Greek symposium. You should be monitoring the level of inebriation, um, kind of slowly dialing it down if it's getting too bad, um, being there as a, as a stopgap against excessive drinking. Um, when you're completely dependent on tips, you can't do that. It, no rational person would deny a table another bottle of wine. Um, if denying them, that's going to piss them off and result in getting stiffed. Um, and you know, another bottle of wine is another X amount of money on your tip. So it's, I think tipping culture is, um, if you wanted to design a system that would maximize public drunkenness and drunk driving and harmful drinking, it would be tip culture (laughs) because the, the, the caretaker role that bartenders and cocktail servers are supposed to be serving is being undermined by the, their economic self-interest. Yeah. And, um, what's the solution? Pay people real salary. Do it like Europe. I mean, you know, in Europe tip, you know, you sometimes tip if the service is really good, but it's like, you know, you round up or you get at most maybe 10% mm-hmm. and they make real salaries and they have benefits. They're not dependent on tipping. So, yeah. so they'll, they'll, and they'll cut you off. I mean, Danny Meyer from Union Square Hospitality is probably the most prolific uh, name associated with trying to get rid of the tipping culture. And yeah. he made, you know, he didn't, he ended up abandoning that um, because I really do think that in order for this to, to happen, it needs to happen collectively. It needs to become yeah. a culture change. The cool thing about culture that I don't think people understand there, we always feel so helpless. Like, oh, like the world we live in, there's nothing we can do about it. I'm like, no, like culture is exponential. Yeah. Culture changes fast. It can change fast. It yeah. can change real fast. And we're not helpless. Like all these companies that we feel helpless to, the Amazons, the Facebooks of the world, yeah. they need us. Yeah. We are the part of the equation, and when, when we come aware, when we become aware of our influence and where we come, what our link is in the chain. Um, if we stop, if we just mindfully, if we become aware, like we can change things, we can make yeah. things happen. So the point I'm trying to make is that if we want our industry to improve, it's going to take a collective action. And the cool, the thing that's super exciting about the internet, I, I, I harp a lot on the internet, but there's a lot of benefit to it. And is that we can move information mm-hmm. around really well. The information from your book, you know, I, I, I got that from the internet. I listened to the audio book a couple times. I would have never been able to do that with the, the internet, people listening to this podcast and learning, right. You know, like we can spread ideas faster than ever before. Yep. And I'm not, a huge proponent of the government coming in and regulating stuff, but this would be one that I'd be for yeah. where, the com- where the government comes in and just says tipping culture is gone. Yeah. 
You now, know, if like, you want to get rid, if you want to reduce drunk driving and sexual harassment and problem drinking, it seems like just a, the simplest no-brainer thing you could do is remove tipping culture. Yeah, like, like <laughs> is, wage is. inequality between front yeah. of house and back yeah, of house. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's yeah. so many things that will go away if we just say, you know what? Let's just make the bill twenty percent more. Yeah, that's yeah. all you have to do. Yeah, it will make everything so much better. And and I used to be on the fence for this. Um, but the more information I get, I think it's really a solution. And the more people who hear this, yeah, will. I mean, I think I think that's just just remember, like, culture is exponential. It changes exponentially. It's not linear. And yeah. it, and there's so much information out there today. Is there anything we did not discuss up to this point? No, I think we covered most yeah. of the main points of the book. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, the mission of today's conversation was to better our relationship with alcohol. I feel like there's just a lot of negative. Um, I mean, and it, not only are we serving people, but there's an issue with alcoholism in our yeah. industry. You yeah. know, so I hope this book or this conversation. I hope it, go get the book again. It's called "Drunk: How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way into Civilization." It's on Audible. If you're an audiobook listener, um, any plugs for the book things we should know about the book it's just out in paperback so yeah. um so you can also get it in paperback now nice yeah. awesome um beautiful um you know we wrap up every conversation by having my guests call somebody out and um what is your official role your professor yeah um in the world of I'm a uh, prof- sociology i'm a professor of philosophy philosophy but i i've been in i'm very interdisciplinary. So I've been in religious studies departments, East Asian studies departments. Um, I'm affiliated with the psych department at UBC. So along this vein of, uh, I like the study history and anthropology, like sociology, sociology. Wow. I can't talk right now. You know what I'm trying to say? I, do, yeah. <laughs> um, I love studying or studying our past to figure out, you know, where we came from so we can figure out where to go. Right. Yeah. So along that vein, who do you think I should talk to? Who do you respect and admire? Somebody who uh, could teach us something about human nature and why we are the way we are and how the restaurant industry fits into that. Yeah. I think Robin Dunbar would be great. Yeah. 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 He's really, um, like I said, this, the role of intoxicants and feasting and kind of sociality has been neglected, I think in anthropology. And he's one of the few people who sees clearly, um, that it's a, it's a crucial cultural tool that we've been using. Yeah. I think I would just like to talk to him in general, just about the importance of culture. You know, I think yeah. he'd, like you'd probably be able to speak to that. Um, where is he based? You know, in the UK, UK. Yeah. He's at Oxford. All right. We're going overseas guys. Going overseas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. I've really loved today's conversation. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Uh, how can we connect if we have questions or maybe, I don't know if, if speaking, I mean, I feel like you have a, a lot of opportunity to speak to this industry. Yeah, yeah. So I've been uh, more and more speaking to both the drinks and restaurant industry because I think um, both industries are realizing that they don't understand what they do. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> they've been flying blind, and it it has real important, you know, regulatory implications. And I think, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, just if you don't understand what the function of your industry is, how do you? advocate for it how do you fight back against inappropriate regulations um it's it baffles me that uh people in the industry don't have this kind of bigger picture you know historically informed anthropologically informed scientifically informed picture of of the service that they provide to 
humans. Do you do speaking? Do you do you book yourself for speaking? Yeah, events? yeah, I do speaking. Events. Have you spoken yeah. at any restaurant industry events? I was just well, I just this trip. Uh, the first stop on my trip was the Beer Institute annual oh, meeting in nice. Chicago. Nice. Um, so yeah, I talked to industry. What's the narrative there? Why would they want to talk to you? To understand what it is, why, why what they're selling is not cocaine yeah. or nicotine and shouldn't be driven out of existence in the same way we'd want to yeah. drive those other things out of existence. I mean, I could really see if you're listening to this and you're somebody who's in the privilege or has the privilege, you're a multi-unit operator who's doing really well from themselves, or maybe, you know, you own 20 restaurants or whatever, like get this guy to come speak to your team. Like, and, and I think this is a really important thing that we educate ourselves on. And I mean, I can help you connect with different um, conferences and stuff too. Yeah. Cause I think that this message has, to. I get think out. this message has to get out. Yeah. So, I, so how can we get in touch with you? Uh, so my website's just edwardslitterland.com. Um, and I, I have a speaking bureau that represents me, but you can also book with me directly. Beautiful. Yeah. Edward, thank you so much, my man. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Edward Slingerland, for coming on and giving us the history of alcohol. And I, I kind of feel like maybe some of you were scratching your head today, like, why is Eric getting people on to talk about the history of alcohol? Well, because it makes up the majority of our profit in the restaurants we're running. And I think it's really important that we better understand our history with alcohol, how we evolved alongside alcohol, how our relationship with alcohol has evolved over time, and that we can use alcohol to do good in that there is a balance to be met in that we, the, our relationship with alcohol today is truly unprecedented in the sense that it's stronger than ever before. We have it in more abundance than ever before. And we have a responsibility to, to you know, respect that and to not overindulge and to find that balance and to educate the consumer about what a good relationship with alcohol looks like. And I hope that this helped improve your relationship with alcohol. I personally, I have to admit, I was probably drinking too much. I was drinking alone. And these are things that you should really not do. And in my personal opinion, um, and uh, hopefully this helped open your eyes too, and it definitely helped me. So I'm hoping I paid that forward to you. And if you guys want to support this show, there's a ton of things happening right now that you can do to support the show. You can give us leads. Right now we're in Chicago. Uh, If you have anybody in mind that we should get on the show in Chicago, let us know. Uh, The week of November 7th to the 11th will be in Atlanta, and we are looking for leads there. Please let me know. Email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. And... You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Right now, we have Sam from SavAndSam.com following me around and getting amazing behind-the-scenes footage. And if the two-hour-long version of Restaurant Unstoppable podcast is too much for you, we have like 15 to 20-minute highlight reels over at YouTube, and um, they're just packed with value. Uh, So make sure you go subscribe and check those out. And other ways you, you can support this podcast is by supporting our sponsors, using our affiliate links, and just sharing this thing with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the industry. And I can't wrap up without saying a thank you to Jared over at Sumadre Podcast for the copy and the editing. It takes an army. It takes a team. And I'm psyched for my team. You can't do it alone. That's it for today, guys. Until next time, peace out.